Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started with our time of teaching. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that really is a, a light unto our feet. Thank you for the wisdom and direction and counsel of your spirit. I ask God that you, through your word, would speak to us. Pray that you'd speak through me and in spite of me this morning, that we might see Jesus and feel invited into a life of following him in a fresh way this morning and reminded, um, reminded of your goodness and your grace and your kindness um, and that we might respond to that appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, uh, well, we are in week two of a new series called Salt and Light. And in this series, what we're asking, the, the question we're looking at is how should we as the church as disciples of Jesus, as the community of Jesus, how should we impact the culture around us? Um, wh and, okay, why should we have that type of impact, and how do we have that type of impact? And so the reason this series is called Salt and Light is because it's one of the metaphors Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount to describe the church's influence on the world around it. And so this teaching, uh, it comes from our main text this morning, which is in Matthew chapter 5. And we're actually going to start there. Uh, we'll be in verse 13 where we started last week. And I'm going to go ahead and read that right now. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, what Jesus is describing here, again, is, is what his church should, should be and how it should impact the culture around it. But what he's also saying is there's a way for the church to express itself that's useless. There's a way for the church to manifest the kingdom that isn't a manifestation of the kingdom at all. He's saying, can you imagine salt that's not salty? That's called dirt. Can you imagine a, a light that you can't see? That's just called darkness. Why would you light a lamp and then, and then cover it up? And so um, key to understanding what the church should be. And again, the church has a lot of flaws. We got into that last week. The church also has a lot of values historically. We got into that last week. But it's important for us to understand, you know, what is salt and what is light. Most scholars you know, would say, you know, to understand this passage, you need to understand um, how the ancient world viewed both salt and light. And last week we did a deep dive on salts. I covered a, a couple different angles on what salt would have been in the ancient world, including my um, love for salt, uh, just generally, uh, love some salt. Um, and then I just talked through the, this idea that, that salt preserves things, and salt adds flavor, and salt was valuable, and all that good stuff. And so this week, what I want to do in a similar vein, since we covered salt last week, is, is focus on the second part of what Jesus teaches here, which is, what does it mean to be light? What does it mean to be light? Like, if we are light... What would the impact be on our neighborhoods or our families or our workplaces or our schools or our singleness or our marriages and on and on it goes? How does light interact with what it touches? And this leads to my outline for you all this morning. I want to talk about the effects of light. Talk about the, the effects of light. And, and I got three points. One's going to be real long. Full disclosure, it might be the only point we get to today. I just can't escape it. It's this. Light creates safety. 
Light creates exposure, and light creates clarity. Light creates safety, light creates exposure, and light creates clarity, okay? So, so the first thing it creates is safety. Um, in the ancient world, just like today, it was dangerous to go out by yourself at night. Um, you know, where there wasn't light, there was danger for a couple of different reasons. One, if you can't see, you can trip and fall, right? Uh, I've, I know some people have had some terrible spills in the dark. Uh, matter of fact, I took, uh, I took Clive to, or uh, Calvin to a youth camp a couple weeks ago, and it was dark, and I just destroyed my head on the edge of a bunk bed, just leaning down uh, to grab something. So there's a danger in the darkness. Again, they didn't have modern sources of electricity like power grids. Uh, and again, now it's not wise now to be out late by yourself, especially in a city. But at least today we have lights everywhere. You can see who's around, what's coming up. You can make out landmarks easier. You also have phones to communicate your status from or to get help, reach out to help from. You have a GPS built in uh, to help you avoid getting lost. Again, in the ancient world, to be out late at night could easily lead to robbery or assault or just getting lost and ending up in spaces you don't intend to be in. Wild animals. You got a lot going on back then when it was dark. Um, again, I took Calvin to Forest Home a few weeks ago. Now, Forest Home is the same place where we had our Family of Churches retreat back in October. Um, what was unique about being there this time was it was covered in snow. So much, covered so much that we got stuck, our car got stuck inside of Forest Home. And then I, and then I, I was like, I'm not sure where the office is because the snow is just totally jacked up, like my ability to perceive where we're at. Buildings are half covered, the hills were covered, and eventually we figured it out. It, what I want to say is, is that um, night does a similar thing. Nightfall can have a similar effect on locations, especially ones that you aren't that familiar with. It can almost look like a different place. And so you can imagine how easy it was to get lost back then and, and, and being lost not knowing what was lurking in the dark. I mean, just imagine no artificial light besides fire. And so any light brought more safety. Um, you could discern where you were going easier. Um, you were able to make out landmarks if you had light, and you could see if anyone was in your path. Now, we have a world today that is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it is more physically safe than it's ever been around the world. Um, again, not perfect, but when you compare it to the history of the world, we have, uh, in, in a lot of the world, um, we have standards for the food that we buy. There was a time, even in America, about 100 years ago, there was no standards for what was in the food. We have seatbelts. Um, uh, when we cross an ocean, rather than taking months at a time where you hope the person uh, who coordinated the, the voyage thought through food and exactly how much. Um, instead, we've got flights where in 6 to 15 hours you're across either Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. We've got antibiotics. We don't have wild animals everywhere. We, we can go on and on and on. But we live in a world, so it's physically safer, but we live in a world that is far from emotionally, relationally, or, being, or spiritually safe. Um, if you just, again, you look at the discourse on social media. If you disagree with someone, you make them your enemy and you label them. You label them racist or Marxist or sexist or misogynistic or demonic or liars or whatever it is. You go, I'm going to put you in a box and walk away. I don't have to engage you as a human being. I can, I can villainize you and discard you. You think through in the West, uh, man, our, our mental health rates are terrible 
for people who have more material goods than any society in the history of the world. Uh, when you think through how many families are broken and estranged, which also leads to mental health challenges with children. Um, there is, again, spiritually safe, there is resistance in the West to land on any stable piece of objective truth. Because, uh, you know, we're moving to a space where any objective truth claim is inherently oppressive because it, it assumes that you can know something. On top of that, the thing that grieves me the most in this spiritual safety conversation is that the church has been complicit in and responsible for the wounding of people who are searching spiritually or, or seeking to belong spiritually. The church, hear me on this, should be the safest place in the world, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. That is Jesus's design. In the same way, in the same way, right? Like a family should be the safest place for a child to grow up. And we know that far too often that is not the case at all. It may be the, the, the source of abuse or pain. That doesn't negate, however, the intrinsic value in families to bless kids. We need, the ref we need to reform the family, not abolish the family. We need to um, pursue its health. And the church family is the same way. Again, the dominant metaphor in the New Testament for the church, and it's not even close, is household or family. One of the massive issues with the Protestant church in the West is we have made a move to treating the church like a business or an event instead of treating it like what it is, a family. Now, there is an event component to church. We're at one right now, spoiler alert. You're at a church event. But this is not the church. This is a church gathering. The church is the people. And the people need to gather, right? Like when my family, when we have dinner, we have a, a big dinner, uh, family dinner and game night, Tuesday night. My family assembles that night and my whole family's there. But that's not all of what it means to be the family. That's an expression of the family that's in the room. It's the same thing here. You don't go to church, you are the church. But as the church, we can gather together. I don't go to family. I am family, but my family gather, gathers in certain contexts. What we've done is we've so elevated that gathering piece, and we've linked it to treating the church as a business, not a family. And then what happens in this room is the most important thing to church life. That's how a lot of churches function. I think you know that's not us at this point. If you don't know, just trust me. Uh, you, can <laughs> you can make it a lot flashier if you wanted to. I've been a part of massive churches where that was the philosophy of ministry. And so what you end up is, is, is since this event is what matters most, then the type of leaders you select reflect that. So this guy doesn't become, right, like the pastor isn't someone who, who, again, if it's a family, a parent's biggest concern is the health and well-being of kids and siblings and the culture of the family, how we treat each other what our values are, how we're living that out, how we're serving each other and doing conflict and caring for one another and meeting needs. Those all become big pastoral conversations. We go, and the reason we do that, we're always going to come back to this book. The scriptures dictate how we should treat each other. So, so instead of that, what you end up with is this is a space to recruit people to come to our event every week. And so you end up with people who are really gifted up front. And th they, again, they're hype men, they're CEOs, they're bad stand-up comedians, or they're professors. 
but they're doing a thing on in the Sunday event, and, and we know very little about their lives. And here's the thing is that being a good talker doesn't mean you're a godly person. So when church is a business, you want gifted people way more than you care about godly people. Again, uh, stand-up comedians are good talkers. Adolf Hitler was a good talker. It tells me nothing about whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. That's why Paul says that to be an elder in the church, you need to lead your household well first. How you lead your family is the proving ground, not whether or not you're a, you know, on the board of a big business or you have a lot of money in an account. It's how do you, how do, what culture have you created in your home? Is there flourishing in your home with your spouse and with your kids? Another problem with, the, you know, the church becoming a, you know, a business or an event instead of a family, um, again, is we, we value the show on Sunday instead of a show in love on a Tuesday. It's wh- was it a good performance versus are we becoming loving people who reflect the character of Jesus, who, who proclaim and demonstrate the gospel with our lives? If you're a business, you don't work out conflict when it's hard. You push out people who disagree and you silence conversation. Right? Everything is viewed through the lens of liabilities, like a business, as opposed to, hey, we're family, we got to work it out to the best of our ability. There are times where someone is unrepentant or someone is a predator and you need to push them out for a safety reason that is very different than you're annoying. Right? If, I, if I could push out members of my family when they're acting annoying, my house would be smaller. I also would be out of it if they could make the same choice at times. Church is a business, and this actually happens, guys. They hire PR teams when center dysfunction rears its head instead of honestly speaking the truth. It's all about protecting the brand. That's a business move. That's not a Jesus move who vulnerably, nakedly takes on our shame and hangs on the cross. When church is a business, we worry about uh, quantitative metrics of the three Bs. Butts, bucks, and buildings. Butts is in your sitting down in a service. I feel like we should change it probably. I, I'm realizing it's just not a great vibe. <laughs> Facilities, feet, and finances or something. We'll see. <laughs> Good at alliteration, I just realized. Um, but, but we value those, quali- th- those quantitative measurements that, again, don't tell me anything. There are a million concerts that have a ton of people, right? I don't know if you guys remember this back in the day, like when Monster Shows would be like, Sunday, 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 Grave Digger, right? Like half a Qualcomm's full to see someone just drive over cars crush cars middle school if a fight broke out man everyone wants to watch doesn't mean anything inherently good or worthy worthwhile is happening but what about qualitative metrics like faith and devotion and obedience to jesus like we're actually considering the type of people we're becoming And then the last thing, man, when church is a business, not a family, it, it, it moves, you move fast to expand the business, even if it means burning out breaking and breaking down the members of the church to get there. One of my grief points um, being at a church like this was just seeing the turnover on staff and how often we allowed their spiritual, emotional, and relational lives to be crushed to make the Sunday crowd bigger. I was like, guys, that, that, that's bad fruit. Don't tell me about the note. Like, that's, that's bad fruit. And so too often in churches, uh, they move too fast for safety with the wrong people leading and no time to reflect on how to care for people, and the results are often disastrous. The results are a lack of safety. 
the room changes. When you view people in your church as giving units or liabilities, saw people talk at some of these business church conferences. You view yourself as a CEO instead of a shepherd. You know what shepherds do? They like clean poop off of sheep. They walk out into the cold. They, they go out to find sheep. They have to know the sheep. When the sheep's in danger, they risk themselves to, to, to get the sheep back. Same thing, spiritual parenting. Paul uses both motherly and fatherly analogies for his care and leadership in the New Testament. When you're a parent, again, your leadership exists for the, uh, for the kids, not you, right? Again, parenting involves, ironically, wiping poop off people sometimes. Spiritually, it's the same way. People are going to suffer. They're going to sin. They're going to make bad choices. They're going to need to be loved and disciplined, but for they are good. And so um, what I want to say, family, is if, if, if I could ask that this church would be anything after being faithful to the gospel theologically, my, my other biggest desire would be that we are a safe community regardless of size, regardless of feel, regardless of polish. Again, I'm, let's have good preaching. Let's have good worship. Let's have good small groups. Let, let's have ways to develop leaders and uh, systems for pastoral care and counseling and ways to meet needs in the community and justice. We're into all that stuff. But we need to be safe. I would love to see a conference, man. Let's just be, let's be safe. How to create a safe church and again i don't mean safe as in right right now culturally safety means uh, no one believes anything because to disagree with someone again you become their enemy so if you hold a truth you believe something's true that means you have to hate the other that's not what i'm talking about i mean safety to disagree um i'm not talking about safety where no one has authority that's not safety right imagine a bunch of four-year-olds and there's no parents that's not safety okay Imagine a business with no leadership. That's not like a stable business. What's going to happen? I don't know. So, so leadership's not bad, but it can be, it can be abused. We've, we've talked about that a few weeks ago. Safety also doesn't mean there's no conflict, right? Like the other thing about families, you, can't, you, you beef sometimes. I see it with my, my kids, with their siblings. Man, I, I hear, I'm going to be honest, I hear it every day in my life. I'm upstairs, here's something going down downstairs, and so I have to come check it out and talk it through and, and sort it out, where I become half, half family therapist, half prosecutor. You know, I have to figure out what's the truth here, who's responsible, and then how can we move forward together. If you are doing life in community, if you know each other well enough to be family, you're going to hurt each other's feelings. You're going to let each other down. You're going to, dare I say, sin against each other. You're going to let people down on accident and do some mean stuff on purpose. That's what happens in families. The difference is, is that in this family, Jesus has a built-in way for reparative work to happen. Where we can make right the thing we did wrong. We apologize, we own it, we make changes, and we're held accountable to those changes. So I don't mean safe as in no conflict. I don't mean safe as in no truth or no authority. I mean safe as in people can heal here. They can get better here. In hospitals, people are forced to get uncomfortable and experience pain from mild forms of discomfort like a medically supervised diet to physical therapy to, to coming off an addiction with extreme withdrawals all the way up to surgery. There's a, a lack of comfort or even pain that's involved, but the purpose of the pain is what makes it good or bad. And in a good hospital, it's, it's for the benefit of the, the, the patient. 
That's what makes them different than a concentration camp. The, the discomfort and pain is for their healing. And so we want to be a church that, that's safe for people to process their pain, their sin, their insecurity, their fears, their doubts. By the way, I'm not trying to be hard on the church. Again, Jesus implies through his teaching, and Paul over and over again with his epistles applies, churches don't always get it right. Matter of fact, they get it real bad sometimes. They need to be corrected. A lot of what the epistles are written by Paul and Peter are, are what scholars call occasional documents, which means they're written for an occasion. And guys, nine times out of ten, the occasions, you guys suck. <laughs> You're not representing Jesus well. Here's changes you need to make. But that being said, family, I want to keep encouraging us to become a safer and safer place. Again, pain, sin, insecurity, fear, doubt. Um, doubt, it needs truth. It doesn't need quick answers. It doesn't need quick answers. Grief doesn't need to be fixed or avoided. Grief doesn't need to be fixed or avoided. Fixed as in, I did it, right? That was easy. Or avoided. What grief? I'm too blessed to be stressed. No. And sin doesn't need self-righteousness or condemnation. I'd even say not very many people, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you don't even really need people to tell you sin's bad. <laughs> it's like we're all here. We all have the problem. This is a sin recovery group. I'm here because I need help. Matter of fact, the only thing that keeps you from becoming part of the church is uh, I don't need Jesus. I don't have a sin problem. I don't need, I don't need grace. And so doubt needs, needs someone with faith who listens and comes along. Uh, doubt needs someone else with faith who listens and comes alongside and gives them time to struggle through why they're doubting. All of you know this, people doubt for a wildly different reasons. Some are completely intellectual, cognitive. Some are completely tied to pain and trauma. There's a, there's a big blend of reasons. And so you want to listen to people before you tell them what they need. Grief, right? It, it needs someone to be present with them as they feel what they're feeling, even if they're saying wild stuff about God even, okay? Now, we're not going to let them write the statement of faith with what they're saying while they're in pain, but you also don't need to, like, make them repeat the statement of faith while they're grieving. They're like, I feel like God's not here. Well, God's omnipresent. I, I, we know. It's hard to feel that, right? I believe, but help my unbelief. I think about the, the, the father of, of the kid who's struggling in the, in the Gospels. Uh, I mentioned this before, a mentor of mine, Steve Cuss, he says that oftentimes um, what we do is we shrink people's problems to the size that we can handle, which is why we throw out a random Bible verse when someone's grieving instead of allowing them to grieve. I'm still for a comprehensive theology of suffering and theodicy and all that stuff, but it takes time to get it in there. A verse is like, God's going to work it all out for good. He says, that's not you blessing them, that's you dealing with your own, you avoiding grief, which isn't what they need. And then sin, you know what sin needs? Kind, humble invitations, encouragement, and accountability. I'm not better than you. I may struggle with the same thing you're struggling with today in three weeks' time, but sin always leads to pain and death. Because it's to oppose God and his ways and how he's designed the world, and it's just foolishness because I love you. I don't want that for you. But we don't say things in a safe church. You don't say stuff like, how could they? Boo, boo, boo. You go, man, I don't sin in that exact same way, but I have proclivities to all types of sin. One theologian back in the day, he said that, uh, I've quoted this before, he says that all of us have the seeds necessary in our hearts to grow the tree of any type of sin and dysfunction. He obviously didn't say dysfunction, it was 400 years ago. 
but we all have, we, like given that, right, right, the nature nurture, basically we all have the nature that could lead to any type of sin. In all the research, whenever there's a catastrophe where people, where genocide, things like that, where people are hurting other people that you thought were normal, you see this. Fear, anger, stuff gets it's sped up, and the seeds that are there, right, the nature that's there, it gets nurtured into remarkably heartbreaking sin or abuse. And so we go, hey, it's serious because it leads to that stuff, so we want to deal with it, but we deal with it not in a self-righteous, condemning way. And we go, hey, I love you. I know what this is like. Let's get after it. And again, this is so important in the climate we're in because people have been hurt by the church, a church that so often has been self-absorbed or self-righteous, the business that left them hurt or confused or used, not healed and strengthened. Many people have experienced churches that proclaimed the gospel of grace from the pulpit, but rarely demonstrated the gospel of grace in the community of the church, how they treated each other. Uh, one of my favorite leaders, uh, one of the few that I feel like I can, I can trust, uh, probably because he's retired, he's, about, he's older, <laughs> Ray Orland, he says this, he says, I grew up in a more legalistic denomination where everyone dressed up on Sundays and pretended to be perfect. We never heard of drama, difficulty, or struggle, at least until something blew up. My own family was a part of this. On the outside, we were a visible part of the church. My dad was an elder, and my mom volunteered everywhere. We were at every service playing the perfect Christian family, but behind the scenes, things were broken. My parents' marriage was headed toward disaster, but there was nothing they could do about it because in our church, you didn't come forward and say you were struggling, especially when you were well-known and visible in the church. So it was all kept inside and continued to fester until it ended in tragedy. This is how many people experience church. It is a place where religious, in other words, good people gather together. Weaknesses and struggles are hidden out of fear of what others might think. And in doing so, we become the type of whitewashed tombs Jesus spoke of, polished on the outside, dying on the inside. He says, sadly, in years past, I carried this same thought process into the pulpit. I was afraid to share struggles or difficult experiences out of fear that the people in the church would not see me as someone worth following. I felt a pressure to be some sort of polished version of me that is somehow worthy of being heard. But this is so antithetical to the gospel. It teaches your congregation that the result of discipleship is someone who no longer needs grace and no longer has to depend on Jesus. Of course, that's not possible for pastors or for the people in our congregations, so we all end up pretending, lying to one another. We hide our weaknesses, put on our Sunday best, and play church. We cover our wounds and hide our struggles. We try to pretend that we are all whole and have no need of a physician. And in the end, no one gets better. Can you guys imagine a hospital? There's a bunch of physicians and nurses. And, and can you imagine just everyone going, I don't know why I'm here. Why are you? I don't know. What do you need help with? I don't know. Are you sick? I'm not, no, not sick. I'm not sick. <laughs> you struggling with a condition? No, no conditions here, right? I just need a doctor, but I'm fine. That's crazy. And so often churches can be like that. He says, what if our churches were places where people could come and trust Jesus with their weaknesses and struggles and where man-made religious barriers or attitudes didn't separate people from the grace and mercy of Jesus? What if instead of pretending to be whole, we modeled total dependency on Christ? 
What if people saw their leaders leaning on Jesus and his grace? What if rather than hiding our failures and weaknesses, we used our stories to demonstrate how to lean on Jesus in every area of our life? Again, there's a lot of churches like this that preach grace from the pulpit and then live lives of performance during the week. I love what Adam said. Adam's a mature, godly man who absolutely follows Jesus. He asks for input in areas that that, that just show great humility and trust of Jesus. He, He clearly has the Holy Spirit. He clearly is following Jesus. And he's like, I forget. As I give this offering to, I forget how grace works and how salvation works. And so the church should be the place where we remind each other, dude, we don't do performance. That's not how we determine our worth and value. We point each other to the true source of our worth and value, and he heals us and restores us and gives purpose to our work and our relationships. Again, a lot of people have experienced churches that aren't safe where they end up burnt out or beat up or used to expand a brand and then discarded. Family with... with, uh, we could be a safe church for these types of people. And that's what I long to be. I've talked about this concept before, but there's this idea of corrective experiences. And the corrective experiences are events that challenge one's fear expectations and lead to new outcomes. So if you were wounded in an area by a type of person, you might project in the future and generalize that anyone who's l- has, who reminds you of this person is going to do what this person did to you. For this conversation, you might go, I was hurt and wounded by a church or a church leader over here, and now my assumption is that every church or church leader is dangerous. And you know what? In a safe church, we go, we get out, you can feel that way. One of the greatest privileges of my life as a leader is to um, slowly gain people's trust if they've been hurt. And I go, hey, I'm not your pastor yet. That's a choice you get to make who you're going to trust with your walk with Jesus, who you're going to trust your discipleship to. And I am down to take as long as you need to observe me or ask me questions to determine if it's safe enough to do that. I have friends who've been really mistreated by doctors. They ask a lot more questions when they go to the hospital now. My my brother-in-law almost died due to a misdiagnosis about two years ago. He's in his 30s. He was sent away from the hospital two times, told he was fine, essentially, and then found out he had like a he was very unlikely to live going into an operation that was an emergency. He's a little c- more careful when he sits with a doctor. He questions what they're saying. He doesn't think he's an expert, but he's probably down to get a couple opinions, and he's he's going to take him time to to trust doctors. And I'm like, man, that's okay spiritually. Like, take your time. But it's not just about the pastor, guys. It's about the community. Do they believe it's safe in the community to wrestle with these things? And they can start to say things like, man, I thought all churches were dangerous, but I'm realizing this isn't true. Um, I don't need to project this onto everyone anymore. Yes, I can be discerning and slower to trust than in the past, but I can depend on people again, a community again. I can depend on Jesus again. I don't need to blame Jesus for the bad stuff the church did. I told this story before. I think it's helpful, though. I I can't tell you that the time I heard Calvin downstairs, there wasn't a fight going on. This time I just heard Calvin say to Olivia, Dad said you should give me your cookies. It's a lie. It's a distortion of my message as the father. He's misrepresenting me. And it would be crazy if Olivia was like, my dad is unjust because Calvin took my cookies. Like, no, Calvin should be in trouble. He should be held accountable. But he is distorting my words that people would go, Jesus is better than I thought. Yes, I got a very bad representation of him of people misusing his words. 
And so I struggle to trust, but I'm learning slowly but surely that Jesus is as good as the scriptures say he is. And so I want to close now and talk about why the church is safe. We're going to have to get to the next two points next week, you guys. I know you don't want to be here all day. We'll talk about how light is exposing and it's clarifying. Um, To close, I want to quote uh, one of my favorite authors, and he says this. He says, we need our brokenness. We need to admit it and know it is the real, true stuff of our earthly journey in a fallen world. It's the cross on which Jesus meets us. It's the incarnation he takes up for us. It's what, it's what his hands touch when he holds us. He says this, in his book, Mortal Lessons, physician Richard Selzer describes a scene in the hospital room after he had performed surgery on a young woman's face. And this is the doctor now, memoir style. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon has followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It is kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the divine. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that her kiss still works for him. This is who Jesus has always been. And if you think you are getting to be, to <laughs> and if you think you are getting to be a great kisser or are looking desirable, I feel sorry for you. He wraps himself around our hurts, our brokenness, and our ugly, ever-present sin. Those of you who want to draw big, dark lines to separate your humanity and your sin, go right ahead. But I won't be joining in you. My humanity, my sin, it's all me, and I need Jesus to love me like I really am. Brokenness, wounds, sins, addictions, lies, death fear, all of it. Take all of it, Lord Jesus. If I don't present this broken, messed up person to Jesus, my faith is dishonest, and my understanding of faith will become a way of continuing the ruse and pretending of being good. Family, this is what we celebrate when we take communion. I want to be clear, we are being transformed by Jesus. The word for that, the theological word for that is sanctification. As a church, we hold to the view of progressive sanctification. Right? That's not sanctification endorsed by the Democratic Party. It's a process of sanctification. Progressive and it, is, it takes time. There is a process, which means church needs to be safe for people who are in process. It needs to be safe for the person you are in this moment, not the future version of you you think Jesus will love more. He loves you now and then. Again, this is like a, a sin recovery group. The only people who aren't welcome are those who can't admit they have a problem, the self-righteous. But for the rest of us who are in process, there has to be safety and patience that allows us to become who we are called to be.
Again, disciple, it, it means, it means, in Greek, it literally means a learner or apprentice, which again means it, we're all here learning, right? No one goes to school because they already know it all. I'm here to learn because I don't know everything. No one goes to recovery because they're recovered, right? I, I'm here to continue my recovery. Brennan, Brennan Manning says that communion is where we thank him for loving and kissing us as we are, not as we should be, because no one is as they should be. So what I want you right now is thank Jesus for his cross that created this opportunity for our safety in God's presence and the safety that then should be, you know, moved from the vertical to the horizontal in this church, that whatever you're wrestling with, there's space to wrestle. Um, holy Father, you are holy, you are altogether different, you are better than us in every single way, yet you adopt us and allow us to call you Abba, Father. And you did that not because we were good, you did that because you were willing to pay a great price, the price of sending your own son. We weren't, um, I love the words of the New Testament, that we weren't redeemed with gold or silver or perishable things, but by the blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish. You redeemed us from the empty ways of life handed down to us by our forefathers, that, that text says. So you, you paid the price. You set us free. You covered our sin. You've forgiven us. You've rescued us. This is who you are. You wrap yourselves around us. Thank you, Jesus, that, that, that you live the life that we can never live, that you died the death that we deserve to die, that you rose again in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering Jesus to do the things he did on this earth, including dying for us, including the sacrifice we now remember as we take communion. Holy Spirit, I ask that, that you would apply the work of Jesus to our hearts right now in this moment that it wouldn't be an abstract cognitive fact we know Jesus died, but, like, but we would feel Jesus died for me. I'm so bad he had to die for me, and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. He did it. Without him, I'm hopeless, but I'm not without him. I'm with him. So he's torn down the wall of hostility. He's torn down the curtain. He's done it all to be with me. And so Holy Spirit, I pray you'd make the work of Jesus felt to us in this moment. And thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed and that your body was broken, that all these things might be true. In his name we pray, amen.